happy Saturday. Is it a happy Saturday to be discussed? It is August 21st, 2021, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker, the style editor of Airmail. I'm Michael Haney, a deputy editor here at Airmail. Welcome to Saturday. Well, I'd like to start off this episode by thanking each and every person who has invited us to a cocktail party because we definitely need those this week. Michael, how are we going to make sense of this news? Well, I think a great place to start is with our view from here this week by Alessandra Stanley, our co-editor. And look, we've all been sort of taking in these images from Afghanistan and Kabul over the last 10 days, two weeks. And it's a very wise and insightful piece. Despite everything that's going on in the news, there's really only one big story this week, and it's the situation in Afghanistan. Alessandra Stanley, our co-editor here at Airmail, has been a foreign correspondent and spent some time there, and she has some really unique insight into what's happening, who's to blame, and how we can help. Welcome, Alessandra. Hello. So you have some experience in Afghanistan. Tell us about your days there as a correspondent. Well, I have, <laughs> I have a little bit of experience from a very, very long time ago. I won't even tell you how long ago it was, but it was so long ago that the Soviets were gone, but the Americans were not present. And you, in fact, you couldn't go from Pakistan into Afghanistan. You had to sneak across the border. And so women journalists especially had to go through these incredible disguises. You know, it was like sort of Virginia Woolf's Orlando. You know, you dress up as a Mujahideen fighter, and, or in my case, as a Mujahideen fighter, and then they put me in a burlap bag, and then they made me disguise me as a sack of potatoes, all just to get across the border. Now that doesn't happen, obviously, but it was chaos almost the way it is now, except that the Taliban didn't exist then. They were, they were different factions. So it's deja vu, but worse. It's the place where empires go to die, right? Yeah, you know, <laughs> we've all tried it. I mean, I'm, I'm really betting that the Chinese end up there someday soon. Not soon, soon, but, you know, it's a authoritarian regime, the Chinese, and there are, there's no um, opposition, so <laughs> they could make the same mistake. But, let, but right now, we're trying to correct our own mistakes. Now, you were the bureau chief for the Times in Moscow. I was there for the, the go-go Yeltsin years after the collapse of the Soviet Union, but... You know, had it not been for the war in Afghanistan, it's not clear that the Soviet Union would have collapsed that quickly. So it was very much on everyone's mind. I mean, you know, you know, but you could see veterans around, penniless. You know, they were treated badly there. They were treated badly when they came back. And you know, there's nothing like a 10-year war that you lose to destabilize a government or a 20-year war. Or a 20-year war. Not, not, I'm making, not making any predictions yet, but it's not a good time, let's say that. Well, this is part of what you talk about this week in the column. I mean, your perspective on how we could perhaps view the end of this narrative. And, and, and you make some interesting parallels to something that a show we might have all been watching recently, right? Oh, The White Lotus. Yeah. Well, because, you know, you saw that last episode where these wealthy, blithe tourists create all kinds of messes in, in vacation Hawaii, and then they just get on a plane and go home, and everything's forgotten. And meanwhile, they leave the people behind, you know, in a terrible mess to, and, you know, helpless. And, you know, we kind of, we're, we're watching that in Afghanistan. You know, we're, we're pulling our people out. We will try our best to get as many Afghans who are with us out. But they're not all going to make it. And, you know, 
Amer most Americans, you know, after a week or so are going to blithely turn their attention to something else. I mean, I'm not what I'm afraid of. Right now, I think there's a lot of horror and, and uh, compassion and what can we do? But, you know, that doesn't last very long. On that note, what can we do? Let's lay some blame. I'm not done blaming George W. Bush. And so I have some thoughts that perhaps I was so galled when he had the audacity to start saying how we should be getting out of Afghanistan when he was the one who got us there and kept us there, made it unable for us to actually succeed there. So my thinking was, I wouldn't wish, you know, Crawford, Texas on anyone. So I wouldn't be sending Afghan refugees to his house. But I wouldn't mind taking his presidential library and saying, okay, let's, let's make that a refugee center. Oh, and by the way, you have a family estate in Kennebunkport? Let's send, you know, let's make that a fresh air camp for Afghan children. That, to me, would be a little bit of atonement. But, okay, we, we are going to say this week we have a little list of practical things you can do. And it's not just giving money to, you know, certain charities like the International Rescue Committee, which is a good one. But it's also who to petition, what kind of social media campaigns can you join. So there are things people can do that aren't a lifetime's commitment, but that can at least help the, situ the crisis situation right now. It's a way to pay a little bit, you know, to do something for somebody else. There's no honor in it. This is not about, you know, p making people feel good about themselves. It's about trying to do something useful. Of course, if, they, if that makes them feel better, great. You spent a lot of time overseas. Have you ever seen anything like this? I mean, was this shocking to you, the way this has unfolded? Well, I mean, I was, thank God, too young to cover Vietnam. But, you know, we have seen this before. You know, what, what's interesting is that when the Soviets pulled out, it was a much more dignified and organized pullout. Now, they, they share, a, you know, borders, or at least, you know, with Tajikistan and whatever. So it wasn't as hard for them to get out. But... There was no scramble from the Soviet embassy with helicopters. I mean, they, they knew when they wanted to leave and they got out. So, so I've seen horrible things happen in all kinds of places. But this particular scene of, of losing a war and leaving people behind or risk, I mean, so far, so, you know, I'm not going to say we have left people behind because we're still working on it. But, you know, you don't want to see that once in a lifetime. And we've already seen it. Where, where do you see Biden now in this? You know, yeah, he didn't see it coming. I don't understand why he didn't see this coming. But I don't think we have a full explanation yet of what he was being told versus what he was thinking. I don't know what, why anybody thought that the Afghans army would, would be able to <laughs> hold off the Taliban once they knew we were leaving. I mean, there's so many questions that at this point, I don't even want to start thinking about it. I just think we should try to do what we can to get people out. Okay, kids. Well, listen, thank you so much. And I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for being here. It's been a difficult week to watch the news as we've watched the United States extricate itself from Afghanistan uh, through horrific images that have been projected on the screen. But there is one bright spot, that's CNN's Clarissa Ward. The chief international correspondent of the network has really distinguished herself in the face of this conflict. She's been covering conflicts around the world for the past 20 years or so, almost 20 years. But um, this is really her moment. She has been bringing Americans and people all over the world into the streets of Kabul at a truly historic moment. And she's done so with a lot of insight, uh, savvy, and grace, frankly. And, uh, you know, she feels like a part of the family now for so many of us who have been watching this happen. I was in touch with her today. It's Friday at the, uh, in the afternoon. And as a Friday afternoon, she's still on the ground uh, at the Kabul airport, but hopefully taking off very soon and getting to safety. 
So I have a piece in the issue just about her background and what prepared her for this moment and how she ended up, uh, you know, kind of covering these conflicts. And she is really a woman of these times. And I have, I know we're going to be seeing a lot more of her in the next weeks, months, and years. Yeah, well, it's a terrific profile of her and her um, wish well as she covers the news over there. And a uh, nice piece of reporting by Ashley Baker. Thank you very much. Ashley, it does remind me there's a story in a similar vein this week, also in the issue, an inside story column by a writer named Helena Merriman. And if you don't know her, she does a fascinating podcast for the BBC, and she now has a book out coming out next week called Tunnel 29. And it covers, which just coincidentally, this past week, 1961, August 13th, was the 60th anniversary of the East Germans putting up the Berlin Wall. When you think about the Afghan people, you think about how desperately people want to get out and how much they want to be free. This story, it's an amazing story about, taken from Helena's book, it looks at how a group of German students tunneled out in 1962. 29 people crossed over, and they did it by tunneling underneath the Berlin Wall. Now, the most fascinating piece of this story is it was funded by a New York City television executive at NBC News called Reuven Frank, who had in his mind, years before anyone thought of like marrying the worlds of drama and film with news and imparting information, he came up with this idea, like he asked his correspondents in the field, can they find anyone who's trying to escape? And one of his correspondents found this group of people. And over the next four months, these two NBC cameramen lay inside this tunnel, filming as these tunnelers dug more than 27 miles to East Berlin, where they escaped. And the events that NBC filmed were so extraordinary that Frank flew to Berlin to personally shepherd the footage back to New York. They edited the film. It was made into a amazing documentary. There was one catch. John F. Kennedy tried to ban it because he was concerned that it would inflame tensions with the Soviet Union. NBC pushed back. They aired this documentary in 1962. Millions of Americans watched. It called. It was called The Tunnel, and this documentary went on to win three Emmys. So it's a great story by Merriman, about, uh, taken from her book. As I said, it's called Tunnel 29, but it's as apt today as it was 60 years ago, that, that struggle to get out and to get free. I'm dying to see The Tunnel and read the book. This is just an amazing story, and in many ways, I think, a hopeful one, right? At least partly. Exactly. Well, let's move on to some lighter fare, Michael. The bread and butter of what we do here on Morning Meeting. <laughs> should, we, should we talk about TikTok or QAnon? Your choice. Wow, well, we've, got, we've got a lot of great social media-related stories. I would start with QAnon, because that's just filed under, like, we thought things were crazy in the U.S. with social media and how it makes people think up is down. Tell us about QAnon in Russia, Ashley. Oh, Michael, QAnon, it's not just for your embarrassing aunt anymore. QAnon (laughs) on the Volga. (laughs) QAnon is a global phenomenon, and we're seeing this play out in Russia. And this is an especially sweet story because of all the regimes in the world, the Russians are among the most controlling and Pandora's boxy in terms of the way they attempt to control media. So now we have a group of people who believes that the dissolution of the Soviet Union is a hoax, and in fact, it still exists. So this is interesting. Michael, why don't you tell us about Ala Paladi? 
Sure. So this is a dispatch by Mark Bennett, and he talks about meeting a woman named Ella Paladi, who goes by the grand title of Chairwoman of the Executive Committee of the Russian Soviet Federative Socialist Republic. She has an office in a rundown former mining college, Liubertsi, a city near Moscow, which was once notorious for organized crime. There's no link to this. And when he meets her, she's accompanied by more than a half dozen self-proclaimed Soviet officials, including a mild-mannered businessman who claims to lead the Supreme Soviet of Russia. So Paladi and her communist comrades are among a growing number of Russians who refuse to accept that the Soviet Union disintegrated in 1991, 30 years ago. And they insist on carrying Soviet documents and many refuse to obey Russian laws or pay taxes because they regard the government as illegitimate. Now, what is so not great about this, but great from a sort of like story point of view, is like, wow, hey, Russia, you did such a great job using social media to convince so many Americans that their government was not legitimate. And guess what? Now the proverbial chickens are coming home to roost with all your former comrades. So thank you, comrade QAnon. And I don't know what Donald Trump would say about this. No Russian collusion here, no Soviet Union collusion. But, you you know, these people are adamant that the Soviet Union, the world's first communist state, did not legally cease to exist. They just live in this state of denial, like a number of Americans who believe some rather strange facts or alternate facts about America, right? Michael, it doesn't seem all that strange, given that Hillary Clinton is masterminding a, a massive child trafficking scheme. Nespa? <laughs> I mean, it's a crazy world that we live in, so anything can happen. It is. Crazy world, yeah. Well, Michael, when you and I were kids, like, when we were growing up, like, the biggest threat to democracy sometimes seemed like it was Bill Clinton's libido, and Gen Z of today have so many more things to worry about that it is no wonder that they are immersing themselves in social media, specifically TikTok, the feel-good, friendly platform. And we have a really fun story about the phenomenon of TikTok and the issue who's using it, why they're using it, and how this whole thing makes money. It's a fantastic piece of reporting by Julia Llewellyn Smith. Look, if you've never been on TikTok or you've only watched it out of the corner of your eye on what your, one of your kids is using, it's obviously, and you maybe have heard Donald Trump trying to ban it because it's owned by the Chinese. It was downloaded more than 3 billion times and it's used by an estimated 1 billion people daily in more than 150 countries. And this growth has got YouTube and Google sort of like very nervous and, or TikTok I should say, is also the only major social media app that didn't originate in California. It was sort of built by a 39-year-old Chinese named Zhang Yiming who has an estimated net worth now of 35.7 billion dollars. So Ashley, are you on TikTok? I look at TikTok and I watch it, but I don't actively participate in it. Like, I don't even want to look at myself in the mirror, much less watch myself try to mimic a dance created by a 14-year-old. So no thank you. Nobody wants to see that. But I do find it's like a feel-good, happy platform, and it makes me feel less icky about myself than Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter combined. So what's not to love? What's great about Smith's piece is, as she says, despite the app's prevailing air of daftness, like you said, there's all these goofy dance videos and blah, blah, blah. But there have been a lot of reports that the company has a toxic Chinese-influenced work culture in its U.S. and European offices, and that people are not sure what the Chinese are doing with all this data that's collected by people who are on the platform. There's some sinister sides to it. You know, increasingly people are using it to educate as well as to entertain. But also she talks about of her 14-year-old who had been following accounts such as hashtag what I eat in a day, but her feed was soon filled with images of girls with eating disorders. And it was, it's not as fun and bubbly as you think. And so again, one of these social media 
the phenomenon. So it has darker side that we have yet to really understand. And yet we're all just jumping right into it, right? Yeah. I mean, it always leads me back to my thesis on this stuff, which is that we're probably better off without social media. Like maybe I'm speaking for myself. It brings people together, et cetera, et cetera. But I mean, I, I don't know about you, Michael, but the average user on TikTok is spending, I think, is it 52 minutes a day? It's just too much time. Like if I spent 54 minutes a day doing pretty much anything else, I think it would be much more additive to my life. Like, can you imagine if you and I spent 54 minutes a day learning how to cook, working on our running skills, listening to music, reading like that would really change my life but like 54 minutes of watching someone make dinner like it doesn't do it for me i'm with you that's why i think it's funny this week george college rockets in the diary has our sort of third piece of social media he talks about the rise of the quote-unquote genuine influencers and these are the kids who think that we're fashion beauty lifestyle all the influencer stuff that stuff is so pre-2020 and they think if you're too aspirational, that's kind of repellent. So now many Gen Zers, they're getting into this thing of being genuine influencers who spread important information that can keep people informed, as they say, which is, I think that's what a news organization used to do. Yeah, that's called the news, Michael. That's called the news. We don't need a new term for it. Come join us. Join the folks over at NBC and CBS and the New York Times, the Washington Post. Like these guys have it covered. It's called reporting. It's called fact checking. And yeah, it's called sourced material. But like, look, if these guys can make fact checking and reporting and sourcing proper material seem sexy, I'm all for it because that has not been the guiding mission of internet culture over the past 10 or 15 years. Nine. Or as we would say in QAnon Russia, yet. Yet. Well, let's move on to some happier, more beautiful things, Michael. I really love this story by Rachel Campbell Johnson about a beautiful new volume of work by Frida Kahlo. I love this story. Tell everyone about it. Okay. All right. So uh, Frida Kahlo, probably one of the most famous painters, bar none. She was born in 1907, the daughter of a German immigrant father and a mestiza mother. And she found fame very late in her life. Her husband, Diego Rivera, was much more celebrated than she was. But after she died at age 47 in 1954, all of a sudden her reputation exploded. Between her first self-portrait and her death, she produced almost 150 paintings of herself. The problem with experiencing and enjoying Kahlo's work is that you can't really pop into the latest museum and find a Kahlo painting because in the mid-1980s, Mexico pronounced her works to be part of its national cultural history heritage and their export was banned. So that's why Frida Kahlo, The Complete Painting, single massive volume, this is published by Tashin, is so cool because all of her authenticated pieces, some of which were from private collections, others were previously lost or never exhibited after her death, are printed in large scale and sometimes double page color plates. And they're often accompanied by photographs, sketches, or even historical images that inform them. So it's a really great insight into Kahlo's work and also gives you a full sense of the body of her work because she produce so much and so little of that has been shown to the world. Yeah, and I think this piece just reminds you that like, like great artists, they have so many dimensions to them and she had so many and even not just in life and not just in her work, but even as Campbell Johnson shows us right up until she died and at the services at her funeral where one friend declared that everyone was hanging onto her hands as her cataphleck approached the crematorium. But, and they say when her body was drawn out of the fire, it was reported the ashes retained the silvery shape of her skeleton for just a few moments before they dispersed and were borne away on the air. So there's, I mean, she's just this figure that is, I think, transfixed so many people through the 20th century and she truly made art out of her life. Yeah, this is a coffee table book you should actually read. With your 57 minutes that you're blowing on TikTok. 
Yeah. Reallocate those minutes. See what magic can happen. Exactly. Well, Michael, on a much more superfluous note, we have identified the next big thing in New York nightlife, or rather the thing that hopes it's going to become the next big thing. And it's a hotel called the Graduate Hotel, and it's located not in the Meatpacking District, not in the West Village, not in Tribeca, not in Fidei, but on Roosevelt Island. Have you ever been to Roosevelt Island? I was there years ago, and you know the best thing about Roosevelt Island? Taking the tram there? Exactly. There you go. No, the best part about Roosevelt Island is the tram taking over there, and it's like you're Clint Eastwood and Richard Burton in Where Eagles Dare. So what's not to like? It's like a scene out of Ghostbusters. So Roosevelt Island is a pretty much uninhabited stretch of land that's nestled between midtown Manhattan and Long Island City in Queens. And it's a pretty small area. It's pretty small by nature. 12,000 people live there approximately, and it's best known as the sort of dubious site of many asylums, hospitals, and prisons from the late 1800s through the mid-1900s. So in other words, not the sexiest possible place. But there's been a spate of development there. And now we have a marvelous new hotel called the Graduate Hotel. And most importantly, it has a really splendid bar called the Panorama Room. And it reminds me, Michael, of the Boom Boom Room, which was located at the Standard Hotel and was the hottest place to be for about five years from what, 2005 to 2010? Something like that? Well, you were probably holding court there. I wasn't cool enough to be there, Ashley. Stop it. I saw you holding court there all the time. <laughs> enough. He tries to pretend like he's just sitting at home reading books. Listeners, we know better. Anyway, Michael, the Boom Boom Room was fun while it lasted. And now we're hoping that the Panorama Room becomes a gathering spot as well. It has some of the most beautiful views of Manhattan that I've seen recently. And plus, as Laura Nielsen writes in her story, isn't everyone just obsessed with islands these days anyway? So is Roosevelt Island really that different from Antigua or Ibiza? I don't think so. Actually, I do, but, you know, whatever. You know another island that's hot as a travel destination right now, Ashley? Shelter Island? No, tell me. No, it's a travel column we have this week by Tim Bouverie. Oh, yeah, Tim! Last week, we had the story of bird season opening in the UK. Got a lot of response about Tom Chamberlain's piece, about all the all the rich people going uh, shooting and then getting into sexual hijinks at night. But Tim's got a great piece about the real sport of kings, which is happening in an island called Iceland, and it involves salmon fishing in the North Atlantic, which is, it may sound sort of like, what's so fancy? about that. Well, salmon fishing, to do it the way the Brits and the English and the Scots love to do it, it's kind of harder and harder to do now because due to the spread of parasites and disease in the wild population, climate change, predators, salmon numbers have been declining. But salmon fishing in Iceland is now a big business and it's a luxury, of course, affordable only to the rich. So if you want to go there and fish salmon in these incredibly scenic panoramic locations, it starts at $10,000 per week to do that. But so Ashley, maybe you want to go there. Caveat here, Airmail did not expense Tim's trip. He had a very generous benefactor that he writes about in the piece. I love this guy, Tim Bouvery. He is so fun. First of all, he wrote this marvelous, he's a historian, let's be clear, and he wrote this marvelous book called Appeasement, Chamberlain, Hitler, Churchill, and the Road to War that I love. It's really addictive reading, especially for a history book. And I ran into Tim weirdly in Antigua about six months ago. He was giving a talk and I was like, wait, is this the Tim Bouvery that writes for Airmail? Long story short, we had dinner together. He's by far one of the best dinner party dates you can ever hope to achieve. So I am not surprised in the least that he was invited on one of these fabulous excursions. Tim, well done. But this is just such a very fun, really what I love the most about travel journalism is it takes you to a place you never even dreamed of going. And that's what Tim does here in this story. So for those of us that need a little bit of an escape from all of the difficult news that is gracing the front pages, dive on in 
the water's fine. Yeah, no, there's a great photograph of Tim astride with his rod and reel and kitted out. And it looks like he's on a small Icelandic horse in this sort of unbelievable part of nature. And it's like, I saw him like, I want to be there right now doing that and not thinking about anything else. So truly transportive travel. Well, Michael, on that note, let's start recommending some things. Let's give people a bit of joy. What do you have? Okay, I'm going to start with, you know, we haven't talked about and I just want to recommend it because if you haven't seen it yet, this is a quick thing you can enjoy. Have you watched the House of Gucci trailer? Oh my gosh. Michael, I'm, I can't tell you how excited I am for this movie. Like, it is the film event of the decade for me. Okay, we got Lady Gaga. We got Adam Driver. We got Al Pacino. We've got who else in this? Okay, we have Camille Cotin, who's Andrea Martel from Call My Agent, who's brilliant. So you know it's going to be a hit. Yeah, if you haven't watched this trailer yet, just Google House of Gucci. It's going to be, I think, a very delicioso film for the fall to look forward to. And bonus fun part of it, Gucci did the fashions for it. So it's full on Gucci for you. But I think it's it's going to... Way to own it, guys, because this is a movie about the very turbulent marriage and very dramatic divorce of Patrizia and Maurizio Gucci, who was the head of the Gucci fashion house at the time, and how that divorce ended up leading to a murder. And Gucci's like, we're here for it. We're going to dress these guys. Like, they totally own it, and it's so smart from a PR perspective, because... It only adds to the intrigue and mystique surrounding the brand, and I think it's just pure genius, so I cannot wait to see it. I hope you also mention that Jared Leto, my personal hero, is also in this film. Okay, which now that's the Venn diagram of crazy couples, Jared Leto performances. Did you see who's filming around the New York City area recently in the Adam Newman, Rebecca Newman WeWork story? No. Anne Hathaway and Jared Leto. Wow. Okay, that's another one we have to see. See, there you go. Okay, but that's a future recommendation. Okay, so I'm just giving you that one, but just a little, put it on your radar. I thought you were going to tease like the filming of the new Sex in the City spinoff. And I was like, Michael, please. But of course, I would know that you'd be five steps ahead of me. Five, well, you're just one step ahead of you. I can't get too far away from you. (laughs) My one recommendation for the week is a foreign film. And it is, a few weeks ago, I talked about Michelangelo Antonioni's La Notte, which is part of his trilogy, which begins, I've sort of been watching, I'm watching it out of order. His first film in the trilogy was La Ventura, which came out in 1960, 61, won the Palme d'Or at Cannes, features Monica Vitti in her breakout role. And if, you know, as I said last week, if you're wondering or feeling bad about not taking a vacation and because of COVID you want to get away. La Ventura is a beautiful film to watch. It can be a little slow at times. You can watch it on Apple Plus TV or the Criterion channel, but it's probably one of the most mesmerizing and haunting films you'll watch in a long time. Just about a group of people who go boating over to the Aeolian Islands and one of the members in the party goes missing. So take it from there. An adventure indeed. Indeed. And you, my dear, what can you recommend? All right. Well, I've got another foreign film for you, Michael. I suppose you and I should swap notes before we do this, but I can't help myself. So I just got back to New York after three weeks on the West Coast. I'm so happy to be back. And of course, the first thing I have to do is go to Film Forum, which is my happy place. So I went to see it this weekend and I saw La Piscine, which is in the, was recently restored and is in the middle of a revival there. And I love this movie. What's not to like? Alain Delon and like a, what, a 21-year-old Jane Birkin? Oh my God. Jane Birkin, like playing an 18-year-old who was probably 14, by the way. But 
The weirdest thing about this is this movie. This was uh, directed by Jacques Derry, and it has a great score by Michel Legrand. Really, really stylish movie. I mean, great costumes, beautiful house, fantastic pool. Also, importantly, a really great little set, like dinner setup next to the pool, but we'll talk about that later. Anyway, this is one of those movies that like, you think is going to be one thing, and it ends up being something else. It starts off with a little bit of romance by the pool, a lot of handsiness, and then two other characters come into the scene, a friend of the couple's and his daughter, played by Jane Birkin. So you think it's going to be like a kind of harmless romantic comedy, but it ends up as a psychological thriller. It gets much more sinister. It's a very slow burn, but a really enjoyable movie to watch and cuddle up for two hours and transport yourself to the south of France. And you know what? If you want a really great Michel Legrand score, have you ever watched The Umbrellas of Cherbourg? Classic of French. Michael, I took a French cinema class in college, so yes, I did. Okay. I, geez, I'm not just, <laughs> it's my favorite Michel Legrand. I saw him once in concert. You did? Where was he? Lincoln Center or somewhere. Play a little recital or something like that. Well, I'm not going to let Delta interfere with my plans to go to film forum. So just grab that N95 mask, friends, and head on down. Well, Michael, I don't think we have anything else we could possibly add to this conversation, so... Let me guess, you'd like me to read us out? Indeed, please do. Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alessandra Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Nathan King and Chris Garrett. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. Our theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please do subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We'll be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure and subscribe at Apple Music or Spotify. But most of all, thanks for joining us.